preaching of God's Word is found in the last two verses of Luke and chapter 14. Luke 14, verses 34 and 35. We read Christ, His Word saying, Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. The words before us are not isolated. They are in context in the word that was given earlier. You'll notice that Christ turns to the multitudes following him. And he says, if any man, verse 26 Come to me and hate not his father and his mother, his wife, children, brethren, sisters, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There is a comprehensive demand placed upon all who would be disciples of Christ to follow Christ exclusively. And yet, we realize that there are many who start out and do exactly contrary to what Christ warned. They start out, they don't consider the cost, they don't consider the demand, they don't consider the cross that is to be placed upon them. And as Christ said, they lay the foundation, verse 29, and is not able to finish it. And all that behold it begin to mock Him and say, this man began to build and was not able to finish. They start out, They make profession, they start following, and then trial comes, hardship comes, difficulty comes. And brethren, we ought to realize this is not something that merely demands persecutions coming. This comes in families when children are born. This comes for working men when their jobs prove difficult. This comes when culture shifts. This comes when other professed Christians are compromised. These things come and they try us. Will we follow Christ or will we compromise? These things come to us. Now, you'll notice the image that Christ employs is one familiar to us. He says, salt is good. It's a simple statement of its own. But you'll notice it's good because it's unique. Notice he says, if the salt have lost his savor. The word savor has to do with season or flavor. And all of us know the unique feature of salt. It's taste. Something's bland. You put a little salt on and instantly it becomes almost a different dish. Could you imagine that? You're putting salt on. Nothing's changing. You wouldn't say, well, you know, I'll keep this. You'd throw it away. Its peculiar and particular use is removed, and therefore it's good for nothing. That's what Christ says if salt loses its savor. How shall it be seasoned? What can you add to salt to make it salty? What can you add to salt to make it seasoned? You can't add anything. You throw it out, and Christ says that. It's neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill. It's not fit to make a field unable to grow anything. It's not fit to do anything even in the trash heap. What happens? You just cast it out. It's worthless. It's utterly 
useless. Now, brethren, Christ has no interest in talking to us about minerals and seasoning and what we do domestically with our belongings. It's in context, and you'll pick, on that, pick up on that at the end of verse 35. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. It's a key showing the proverbial use of these words. He's saying, the message I'm testifying to you is deeper than the surface level appearance. I'm not talking about salt. I'm not talking about seasoning your food. I'm not talking about those things. I'm commanding you to think deeply upon this. And notice the context. It's about discipleship. It's about following Christ. It's about denying ourselves, bearing our crosses, and being those who are true disciples of Christ. And so what Christ is getting at is this. If those who profess Christ lose their unique following of Him, they are become utterly useless. They're worthless. They're of no value whatsoever. Their impact on the world is not only negligible, it is nothing. As they compromise their holding to the doctrine of Christ, as they compromise their obedience to the commands of Christ, whatever else they're doing, Christ says, is of no use. It's of no value. And yet, brethren, you and I know full well that there are many who compromise the true faith of Christ They set aside His commandments and they say, well, we're still doing good. We're still a little bit different than the world. But the difficulty for them is that they don't understand they're measuring by the wrong standard. They're measuring by worldly standards and assumptions instead of taking Christ's word and saying, what is His thought of us? And Christ says, one who ceases to believe and follow Me, as My word says, is become useless. They're no longer unique. They're no longer the distinguished and distinct people of the King of Heaven. Think of it this way. Christ came, as the Gospels record, and He pronounces the Kingdom of Heaven is at hand. Who is it that's pronouncing that Kingdom? It's not just an ambassador. It's not just one who's been delegated to announce it. It's the King Himself. And he comes with no terms. He doesn't say, let's you know, find a way to meet in the middle. He says, I'm a king. You need to repent and believe. You need to turn unto me. You need to lay down your weapons. You need to lay down your reasoning. You need to lay down your life and say, I submit. Not 90%, not 95%, not 99.99%. You need to lay down everything your words, your desires, your finances, your bodies, your homes, your hobbies, your uh, pastimes, all of it is laid before the feet of the King and said, you only are the King. I am but a rescued and redeemed subject. But the temptation comes. People profess that. But then, little by little, things start to lead them astray from this following of Christ. Money starts to be a little bit more powerful to them. The comforts of family become a little bit more comfortable to them. Friendships develop in 
among wicked men that becomes more important to them. And little by little, they compromise the claim of Christ. And Christ here supplies a tremendous warning against this. You'll notice the image appeared in Matthew chapter 5, as we read earlier from verse 13. Christ says there, as similarly He says in Luke, He says, Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out, to be trodden underfoot of men. The context, again, is in instructing disciples. The idea of salt is the idea of the uniqueness of those who are followers of Christ. Notice how the image is employed by Paul in the book of Colossians in chapter 4. This is each, and he speaks about, or he writes about, the way that we're to speak. And he says in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Notice this. Something as regular and common as our speech is at all times to bear the evidence of grace. At all times, it is to be seasoned as with salt. Not just the grand works. You know, sometimes the modern church fails in this, and they think, you know what, if we're going to be God's disciples, we've got to go do the big things. Well, there are big things to be done. There are great works to be done. But there's this temptation to overlook the most common and regularly occurring things as if those are not consciously to be touched by God's grace. But here Paul says, let your speech, your communication out of your mouth, words that are heard by others from you, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Brethren, the grace of Christ Jesus is to permeate every aspect of your being, every circumstance of your earthly calling from your individual lives, to your marriages, to your parenting, to your entertainment, to what you let in through the gates of the eyes and ears, to what you let out by the gate of your mouth. Everything about you, all of your time, is to give evidence that you are not your own, but you are Christ's. Now, this comes immediately with implications. The world ought to know that. There's no one in your life who should not know you are different. Does that challenge you and me? Think of that. Everyone in your life ought to know there is something uniquely different about you that's not found in the world. You say, well, that's pretty strong. Do you know when salt's in your meal? Do you know when it's missing? You know the difference between something salted and unsalted. And likewise, the world will know something different between those who are gracious and holy versus gracious and unholy. Well, notice then as we consider this teaching, two things to help our thoughts. Firstly, the Christian's unique calling. What is it that is unique about the Christian's calling? And secondly, The Christian's common compromises. The unique calling 
and common compromises. We start then with a unique calling. Something that's unique is different than others. Now, obviously, Christians aren't unique from one another in their essential calling. Christians together are the one and true and holy people of God. They are called to be saints. But when we speak of the Christian's unique calling, we are talking about this Christian being called as a wife, or this Christian being called as a husband, or this Christian as a minister, or this Christian as a deacon, or whatever else. We're speaking of a Christian as opposed to those who are not Christian. What is unique about all Christians compared to the rest of the world? Well, there are some things that are quite basic. Among those basic things, a Christian is one who is called out of the world unto the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are no longer, as it were, citizens of the world's view of rebellion and culture and uh, knowledge that is known to the world. You can see this in a number of places. One is, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul is speaking about the grace of God upon those who are believers. And you'll notice he says, uh, by way of contrast, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Notice verse 2, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, the way the world moved. That's how you were walking. That was your approach. It was according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation, our way of living in times past. And he isolates the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and we're by nature children of wrath. This is what is common to the world. Their reasoning, their speaking, their time, their employment, their recreations are all governed by one It's the lust of the flesh. Now, it may be less apparent or perhaps less heinous versus more heinous. Some recklessly abandon themselves to the uh, outflow of their reprehensible lusts and others in some way dress it up. It's a little bit more stylistic and appropriate in the presence of others. But here's the fundamental difference. Whereas that's true of those in the world, Paul says, verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. He's enlivened us together with Christ, so that we're no longer in the world. We are in Christ. We are no longer governed by the world or fleshly lusts, we're governed by Christ. This is the foundation of what is unique about the Christian. Those who reason as the world does, they reason according to the principles of rebellion, of sin, and of death. But Christians aren't dead in their sins anymore. Christians aren't to live as the world does anymore. Rather, they're alive in Christ and are to reason according to His mind. So Christian one is one who's called out of the world unto the Lord Jesus Christ. They are, in other words, those who follow Christ. And so you'll notice in Luke 14, this is 
in the passage immediately preceding when he speaks of this very thing. Verse 26 and 27, verse 27, he says, Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In verse 33, so likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Essential to being a Christian is saying to everything else, you no longer have the commanding control of my decisions. You no longer have authority over my life to lead me this way or that way contrary to Christ. I forsake all of it. I forsake my own heart. I forsake my own reasoning. I forsake yours and the cultures and the world's because I have one whom I now follow, and that is Christ Jesus Himself. And Oh, the importance then of discerning the truth of His Word. When Christ says, for instance, My sheep, they know Me. They hear My voice. But what does He say? And they do what I say. They follow Me. This is behind His reproof. Why call ye Me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? Brethren, when we start to understand this, we start to realize that there are many who take to themselves the name Christian who in no uncertain terms have no right to the name. They say that they're Christian and yet they look at God's Word in the black and white of its teaching and they set it aside and they say, no. And they follow instead the dictates of their own conscience, their own thoughts, their own hearts, the world, parents, so on. And they rebel against the Christ whom they claim to follow. Now, brethren, let's be frank about this. This is true anytime you and I sin. We are saying to the king, no, I'll follow my own desires. I'll follow my own thoughts. I'll take my own route and I'll figure this out. It's the height of rebellion. Sin is no little thing. It's true there are less heinous sins that are less openly deplorable, openly rebellious, and so on. But every sin, even the slightest sin, that maintains outwardly some form of obedience, but inwardly rebels against Christ, is the act of treason. It's going to Christ and saying, I'll not follow you. I'll not do as you have me do, and so on. Brethren, the nature of true Christianity is the exact opposite of that. It's taking Christ and saying, why do I believe this? Because Christ gives me it to believe. Why do I speak this way? Because Christ calls me to speak this way. Why do I live this way? Because Christ calls me to live this way. So what's unique about a Christian is that they follow Christ. This is sometimes difficult to make sense of because, of course, Christ would have us follow in appropriate order lawful authorities. He would have us follow in appropriate order parents. He would have us follow if a wife, our husband, if children, our parents, and so on, if a congregation, the eldership, and yet, when those become uh, in clashing with one another, when a husband says to his wife, you'll worship this idol, 
The wife is able to say to her husband, I love you, husband. I'll submit to you in everything lawful, but to worship an idol I am forbidden by one greater than you. When the government comes and says, church, you're not going to gather anymore. You know, we're worried about this outbreak of the illness. The church says, we'll respect you in all of your dominion. We'll submit to you in all lawful things. But to forsake the assembling of ourselves together for the worship of God is not ours to give to you. It doesn't belong to you to take from us. It belongs to our King. And so we submit to Him. And brethren, we can go to lesser things perhaps as we think of them. When we know that we're to keep our tongue from speaking ill, and so we do so, exercising perhaps what we think is great restraint, but in our heart, we're still having the hatred and the desires against those that we speak to. That is rebellion against Christ. You say, well, who is ever perfect in these ways? And to our shame own that, to our shame, we must say none of us is. None of us is perfectly fulfilling the unique calling of a Christian. But by God's grace, He is increasingly at work in us that we more and more resemble Him in our thoughts and words and actions. This is related to the progressive sanctification of the saints. The Christian at his earliest day of faith is a true Christian indeed. The peace of God is his. Fellowship with God is his. Heaven is his. But as he or she is given life and grows, his or her personal conformity to Christ will be greater five and ten and twenty years down the road than it was at the first. Why? Because God is at work in us making us increasingly to will and to do of all of His good pleasure. So a Christian is one who professes the true faith and follows that faith which he professes. Well, what is his calling? It's to do that, of course, to believe God. It's to worship God. It's to obey Christ. It's to live a holy life. It's to call others to Christ. We could spend weeks upon any of these particular themes, but essentially, at its basic level, the Christian's calling is to follow Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. Here's something that we in our nation need to realize. Your conscience is not king. Your conscience is not the last court of appeal. Because your conscience and my conscience can be wrongly informed and can be in rebellion against God. It never settles a matter to say, well, my conscience doesn't think that's right, or my conscience thinks that it is right. Because the problem can still be that my conscience is wrongly informed. My conscience is wrongly cultivated. The last court of appeal is the Word of God. That's why throughout the Scriptures we're met with this refrain, thus saith the Lord. This is why when God is reproving false prophets, He says, listen, if they speak something contrary to My Word, it's because there's no light in them. We are a people who are beholden to one Word, the Word of God in the Scriptures. That's our unique calling. And brethren, when it is that we follow this unique calling, 
the impact is tremendous. This is what caused the world to say that these followers of Christ have turned the world upside down. Think of that expression. One reason that's the case is because the world has it inverted. And they put man at the top and God at the bottom. They put ourselves at the top and God at the bottom. But what the apostles and early church was doing is they were putting Christ at the top and man at the bottom. They were acknowledging and glorifying God as God and man was reckoned as man. And so the world was turned upside down. You could offer them money, they wouldn't compromise. You could give torture to them, they wouldn't compromise. There are letters in the early church that testify of this. And they say, listen, if there's a true Christian, don't even bother with offering them riches and torture. You're just wasting your time because they have supreme love to Christ. And so just be done with it. Put them to death and be finished. That's the nature of true Christianity. And when it is that you and I love Christ supremely and everything else beneath Him, there will be dramatic change in the world as the Lord adds His blessing. So the Christian's unique calling is to follow the Christ who has called them. Secondly, what are the Christian's common compromises? Well, we should note that there are types of compromise that may be helpful to understand. Any compromise to Christ's Word is without qualification sin. Any and every degree of it is a sinful action, thought, or word. But we can make the distinction between those which are sinful and affect the well-being of one's profession as well as sinful and affect the being of his profession. It's similar to the distinction between the being of the church, what makes the church the church, versus the well-being of the church, what makes the church healthy or well. And so with the Christian, there are some compromises that do not compromise the integrity of us being a Christian, absolutely, but they do make us in a sickly position and in a less powerful position of impact. So it's helpful to remember this. And so, for instance, of the first sort are those sins which are to be covered by brethren, right? So we're told in the Scriptures that love covers a multitude of sins. Now the world says, therefore Christians never approve me, because if you loved me, you'd never approve me. Love covers a multitude of sins. And oh, how the world loves to cleave to those things, behind which they may find shelter in their own supposed lusts to harbor their lusts and continue in the path of sin. However, the Scriptures also tell us that there are such sins which are to be reproved and even be reproved before all. Why? Because some sins of their very nature scandalize others and cause the profession of one to lose any credible belief. So we speak of the idea of a credible profession of faith versus one that is incredible. When we use the term incredible today, we're talking about something amazing. But the word incredible means 
unbelievable. It can't be believed. It has no ground to be believed. Whereas something that's credible is saying there is reason to believe what's being professed. And so what are some sins that affect the well-being, but not necessarily the being, the reality of our profession of faith? Well, we don't have time to go into all the details, but we can say this. In simple terms, sins, whatever they are, that are not met with repentance, place us into the position of questioning the integrity of our profession at all. So in other words, you think of this. What did Peter do when he denied Christ? Brethren, we say this with all sincerity. He did something more heinous than murdering an infant in the womb. That strikes us in our day as like, you must be out of your mind. You think that Peter's denial of Christ is worse than murdering an infant? It's not I who think it. It's God who says so. Because that is the first and greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Which commandment is it? Thou shalt not kill. It's the sixth. Which table is that? It's the second table. And so, however heinous it is, however reprehensible and abhorrent it is, murdering of infants, it's less heinous than the direct and explicit denial of Christ. It's a wicked abomination. And yet, what was it that Peter then did? He repented. And what the evidence was then is that his compromise, as wicked as it was, as sinful as it was, yet was a compromise that did not shake the reality of his being a Christian because it was met with repentance. Now, brethren, we can look at Judas who sold Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And when it was that he became under conviction, what did he do? Oh, he had sorrow, but he went out and he hanged himself. He did not repent, though he had remorse. This is something for us in our day to realize. Remorse, though an ingredient of true repentance, is not repentance. One can weep, howl, sorrow, say many things, and yet if they break not off the course of sin, there's no repentance. They may say, what else do you expect of me? I've admitted I'm wrong. I've said I'm wrong. I've shed tears that I'm wrong. Well, this is what Christ expects. That you leave off your sin. And you repent. There are many things we could talk about with these particulars. Is this something that we ought to be concerned about? Is that something we should be concerned about every single sin? But brethren, the essence of the matter is this. If we do not repent, we have no credible reason to be treated and spoken of as Christians. If we live in sin, we have no reason to be accounted as Christians of the true sort. We may be apostate Christians. We may be Christians by profession and covenant sign and seal, but we've turned unto apostasy. 
but we're no longer to be considered as those who are esteemed true, vibrant Christians. No, brethren, Christ has much to say in so little, so few words. When he says, when such is the case, when one turns aside, when they made the good profession, and yet then they turned unto apostasy and would not repent. He says here, it's neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. And what men do with salt, Christ is saying, He does with those who profess faith and walk in sin. They're cast out. It doesn't mean, however heinous the sin is, that God will not bring them to repentance. But one thing it ought to do is make us to tremble. Because think of it this way. The great sins are the outworking of little compromises that lead before it. Peter was led to deny Christ by his pride. Do you remember that? What was it that started the whole thing? Oh Christ, though all men forsake thee, yet surely not I. Do you know at that point he was already refusing Christ's word? Christ said, this night each of you will flee from me. Each of you will betray me. And whatever his good intentions, instead of falling on his face and pleading with Christ for grace that he would be kept from it, he says, I won't do that. And that pride carried itself through until he meets with this servant girl and he denies to be a follower of Christ. Brethren, note this. You may not be in adultery right now. You may not have your hands dripping with blood right now. But if you're entertaining pride, there's nothing that should keep you from denying Christ if you do not repent of that sin. We think, oh, I would never do those things. But Peter, by permitting pride to sneak as it were through his soul, was led by the weakness of his lack of power to deny Christ openly and publicly before men. We get lost sometimes when we merely think in terms of, well, I'm not guilty of heinous sins. There's never a heinous sin that breaks forth that was not preceded by little sins unattended and unrepented of. And so there's a warning to us. If we are to take heed, if we are to have ears to hear and hear, as Christ says, then we must take heed to ensure not only that we're avoiding those wicked, heinous transgressions, but that we're actually giving ourselves to the listening to and following of Christ. We need to ask this question of ourselves. What in my life remains still contrary to Christ and His Word? Whether it's considered by the world as heinous, whether it's considered by the church as heinous, what in my life is at odds with Christ's Word. Because I'm not called to be, as it were, a little different than the world. I'm called to follow Christ comprehensively. All of my life is to be lived for Him. Brethren, when we think of the impact of compromises, we saw this in the epistle of Second Peter. These who made good profession at first and then became false teachers, what did they do? They led many astray to their destruction 
and the false teachers were leading them astray to their own destruction. The end result of such compromises as lead us away from Christ is our certain and most just condemnation. Well, brethren, as we seek to apply these things more fully, we ought to realize that Christ here presents a searching reproof to any who live lives, as it were, that are mimicking the world. Now, let's be clear. Christians have jobs. The world has jobs. Christians have marriage. The world has marriage. Christians have children. The world has children. The world has recreations. The Christian has recreations. But it's as we're told in John's epistle that we are in the world, but not of the world. So we have our jobs, if they are lawful, not just by the civil law, but by the moral law. So we're not in jobs that are in like payday loans that are built upon that wicked enslavement and bondage of ongoing usury at high rates and so on, and keep people coming and coming and enslaving them and enslaving them. We are involved in things that are contrary to God's law and our various callings. But as we do fulfill our works, as we do carry out our calling, we do so preeminently as Christians. And so our speech is different than our neighbor who has the same position. Our thoughts are different than our neighbor's, though he has the same position. A Christian wife is a faithful wife, but she's doing things differently than just, as we might say, good wives in the world, because she's motivated out of love to her Lord to serve her husband. The husband who is faithful, as you can find so-called faithful husbands in the world, is motivated by an altogether different principle, out of love to Christ, who has loved us, we then love our wives, and so on. We do our work as unto the Lord. Servants don't just serve their masters with ice service, as it says, in their presence, I'm going to do it, but sincerely from the heart, not only to the good and gentle, but to the forward, to the contrary. Why? The world looks at this and says, our boss is an idiot. Our boss is a foolish man. Why won't you speak about him like we speak about him? And the Christian says, because I have a Lord who rules over that boss, and I serve him before I serve the boss. A server waiting tables has temptations to uh, claim fewer tips than actually come because of tax laws. But the Christian server claims all of the tips, all of the cents, all of the dollars. Why? Because he serves one whose law is greater even than the nation's law. The Christian lives, yes, in all of its circumstances, in all of his callings, and yet he does so as unto the Lord. So that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians that whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of God to His glory, and so on. So when it is that we start to mimic the world, and think of how subtle this is. Well, we're against profaning God's name. 
but it's okay for us to let our children be exposed to programs on radio or television or movies that make light of profaning God's name. Why? Well, it's sort of maturity, isn't it? You know, we know that's wrong. We'll tell our children that's wrong. But we actually expose our children to blasphemy. Would you be more horrified if you caught your son in bed with a woman not his wife or your son using God's name in vain? Think of that for a moment. What would cause more outbreak of your enragement, more horror to your soul that your son is sinning? That they've been caught fornicating or blaspheming? Now, let's be clear. Both are reprehensible. Both are worthy of judgment. Both demand action. But if the climate of our culture is any testimony, not just the climate of the world and its culture, but the professing church is any testimony, the majority of Christians don't bat an eye at one of their children taking God's name in vain. This is a sign of the salt losing its saltness. This is the reason why the culture in the world has little to no shame about so many putrefying sores of wickedness breaking out because the church has no concern about it. You can continue on through all of these things, but the point is this. We are at risk in our world of fulfilling the very warning that Christ has here given. We're at risk because we say, well, it's not as bad as the world is. But Christ never called us to compare ourselves with the world. He calls us to live as light, as salt, something that's different from the world. Your marriages are to be different than the world's marriage and its breakdown. Your parenting is to be different than the world's parenting and its compromises. Your entertainment is to be different than the world's entertainment. Your pastimes are to be different. If lawful, they're done for different reasons. They dominate or they, they take up different amounts of time. You don't do them because you're enslaved to them. You do them for the purpose of renewing your body and soul that you may more diligently serve the Lord. Everything is revolutionized by the claim of Christ. Intimacy in a marriage is revolutionized. Discipline in a family is revolutionized. Our recreation is revolutionized by Christ whom we follow. Our days are revolutionized. Our work is revolutionized. Because we are different from the world. How? Why? Because Christ has called us out of the world. And so we don't think, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. We ask, what does my King who calls me say? And this is the word that I'm called to follow. Brethren, this is, of course, cause for prayer. Each of us, every single one of us, will have reasons to renew our look at our lives and examine ourselves after the Word of Christ and not after the standards of the age 
and ask ourselves, where in my thoughts and actions and desires is there something not, as it were, in submission to the Lord? And this causes us to pray and confess. It causes us to repent by God's grace. But brethren, let us close with this to help us. You are, by Christ's pronouncement, salt in this world. You are unique by His Word. This is actually fairly instructive for us. It's Christ who calls us out of the world. It's Christ who equips us for service in the world. It's Christ who changes us. And so what this ought to do is not to say, okay, I need five books. I need to take this and think through that and talk about this. It ought to preeminently cause us to go to Christ and say, make it so. Make it so that you who have called me out of the world, that you would cause me to live differently than the world. Make it so that my love would be ordered to you above all else. Make it so that my eyes which are starting to close and my soul which is becoming drowsy would arise and would be strengthened to live as those which are different from the world. It answers, of course, all of the nonsense that passes for so-called evangelism today. How are we going to attract the world today? Well, let's throw up a a party and let's have this attraction and that. Let's start trunk-or-treating. All of this nonsense has no purpose in the true exercise of Christianity because it's using the world's tools to do what? To gather worldly people. We need Christ to make us His that we would be like Him, so that He would employ us to call others unto Him. We don't want our building to be full of people. We don't want more people to start worshiping here to be with us. We want more people dead to themselves, alive unto Christ, loving Him. That's what we want. We don't want people to know about us. We want people to know Christ, We don't want our budget to be balanced. We want Christ's praise to be full. This is what we want. And if this is ever to come to pass, it is only to come to pass as we gain our way of thinking and living directly from Christ, which demands two things at least. An intake of His Word and a communion with Him unto our change. Without those two things, it will be most certain that the salt will lose its savor and we will become useless. But as we take in His Word, which is life, as we commune with Him who is life, He continues to sustain us and enliven us and give us that which is not given to the world that we then may be used of Him, by Him, for the glory of His name, now and forever. Brethren, put to death the temptation to justify anything by the activity of others. And more than that, take to yourself the Word of Christ and His fellowship that you would fulfill your profession and live as those who are unique in a world which is clouded and confused And that you would, as Christ says elsewhere, prove to be light in a world of darkness 
to his glory. Would you stand with me for prayer?